Hello everyone and welcome to the podcast. I'm the Grumpy Surfer and your host Ads Lyson. Happy New Year to you all and I hope you've made some goals and set the bar high for what you're going to bring this year whether it's getting in the water surfing, jiu-jitsu or those of you that are serving in the military traveling around the world. It was an interesting 2022 for me. I left the military in May. I set up my own business a jiu-jitsu academy and a therapy clinic. And now rolling into the new year, I'm going to start pumping out some exciting podcasts for you guys to listen to. So my guest this week is a commentator on some high-level grappling productions. He owns his own academy himself called Escapeology. And it's just an all-round really nice guy that isn't scared to share his ideas and thoughts on the jiu-jitsu world. So please enjoy my conversation with Tom Barlow. Tom Barlow, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. Three questions for you. How are you? Where are you? And are you training today? I, how am I? I am, I'm not too bad. I'm just on the tail end of a migraine, which is always an interesting experience. Um, where am I? Where am I? Where am I? I'm in my living room in Cambridge. Um, we have a beautiful house just on a river. And what was the last question? What um, am I training to get? Are you training today? Uh, not physically, but I'll be doing a ton of mental training. Migraines, yeah, they're they're, they're they're a consistent thing. Uh, no, it's just something that they normally crop up when I get like overtired or overstressed. Like we've had a very busy um, kind of, I would say, few months. Basically, since since coming back from Polaris, we've just been on the go. Like Chelsea has been over competing, and we've been at a lot of seminars. Um, so, for example, like in in uh, in November, it was like. Uh, we did Polaris. We did Polaris. I taught a seminar the day after. Following weekend, Chelsea was up in. She flew over to Rome to go and compete in the Nogi Europeans. So I was like left solo dadding. Following weekend, we flew up to Scotland. So we're up there for four days. Got back, and then we pretty much straight went into having Tommy Langaker our gym, rushing around doing that, and then it's just like ongoing. So I got a little bit overtired, and that tends to 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 kind of trigger them. Um. Which isn't really ideal when you're trying to like you know ferry a bunch of people around and keep them entertained and, and and be energetic, and all you want to do is curl up into a little dark room and, and sleep, but you know that's part of the life, I suppose. This is the therapist in me coming out now. So is there, is there anything you specifically do for them? Um, uh, no, I've tried lots of different. I, I found that so one of the, one of my one of my tips is um, mockers, like coffee chocolate. Um, seems to make a really big difference for me like i find that uh it, it kind of takes the edge off off the migraine a little bit and allows me to function i think it's because the caffeine's a bit of a vasodilator so it helps like the blood flow going through your through your brain and then you've got the sugars that are just giving you that little bit of pep of energy um, but yeah that's my recommendation anybody who has a migraine try that see if it works for you if it doesn't i'm sorry but at least you got a nice tasty drink out of it um, <laughs> exactly you know <laughs> so yeah that's the one thing that i find works pretty well uh, I've tried lots of different drugs and things like that. And um, yeah, unfortunately, I, I would love just to curl up in a ball and, and sleep. Um, but that's just not an option with a, with a gym and a three-year-old. It's just not going to happen. Yeah, I mean, I I, uh, I see a few people every now and again that have, have headaches and uh, and migraines. And I always find that it's, it's, a, it's a tension buildup in sort of like the upper back, shoulders and neck. Yeah. Um, without going to sort of like anatomy and physiology into all of it. 
um it, it the, the, the neck muscles that that feed into the back of the skull they mm -hmm. they um they contract when they're under tension which then yep. puts a lot of pressure onto the brain as well yeah uh, and I, and I think a lot of people sometimes when they when they talk about headaches and migraines they just kind of think it's it, it's just something that innately happens and that there's not really a lot they can do with it and they just deal with it and and uh, I think like you you're just saying there take a, a a few meds is kind of like um, sometimes it's kind of an easy option when there are yeah. other things out there that um, can actually quite quite blow your mind and the very simple little things that, that can actually help like your mocha for instance you yeah. know that that it, works the, for you right yeah exactly I think I, I often find like you know there's obviously my relieve and stuff like that I really don't find they do much um like I just I, I don't <laughs> like they just they don't seem to have too much of an impact um so like sorry that was my, my thing going off uh, so I just I just really focus on having mockers, and if it gets really bad, then I found paracetamol tends to work better than anything else. Um, it's just kind of like dulling the pain down, and then just ride ride it out, and eventually it'll go in like three or four days, which is great. Well, I think that's quite an interesting start to a podcast talking about migraines. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so uh, a little bit about you, then I'll just find a few things that I've uh, I've Google searched because we always mm -hmm. do that, a little bit of research, of course, a little yeah. bit of Google searching. So you're a three times no-gi world champion, European champion, and competed in numerous sub-only competitions uh -huh. like Polaris, which you commentate mm -hmm. on. Um you're a commentator for Polaris, and have you done any other commentary for any other jujitsu or? Uh... Yeah, I've done a I've done a couple of things. Um, I for a while I was uh, working for the AJP just before the pandemic. Um, I was doing all of the Grand Slams. Um, I was commentating on there. They were trying to push their kind of um, accessibility a little bit more, so they employed me to do the commentary work for the Grand Slams, which is quite interesting. So I'd be sat in a box in London for uh, two to three days at a time, just with the stream coming in and then me commentating over the top of it, which was great. Actually really helped my commentary for Polaris, but it was a, an interesting experience. <laughs> yeah, because it, it's not exactly it's not exactly a, a short contest, is it? You know, if you're, no. if you're talking about each individual, you know, fight that goes on, and you've got no one really to kind of bounce off and you're just kind of sat there and you're talking over it. I can imagine it, I, I can imagine it's trying to do an audio book, but all in one go at the same time. Yeah. So I'd be doing about eight hours of talking essentially. Um, and the, yeah, I know it was really bad. Like uh, the, uh, the, 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 the other challenging thing as well is because it was, so the feed was coming to me and then being streamed out. So it was live. It wasn't pre-recorded. So the first one I did was in Tokyo. And I think I had to be at the studio for 2 a.m. It was, it was either, it might, might, that one might have been a little bit early. It might have been 10 p.m. And then I finished at like 8 a.m. or something ridiculous like that. So I'd have to be in like through the night doing this, um, this, this commentary work. And it is like, it's hard to, to, to go through all of the matches. Like I, I'd probably do like a hundred matches in a, in a sitting type thing. Um, wouldn't necessarily know about any of the, uh like competitors because often it'd be like the first day it'd be like blue belts and you know random people who didn't know couldn't find any information about other than what was on there like ajp records um and you'd have to still kind of give some insight try and create some tension try and create some excitement about what's going up pre-frame what's happening later or happening tomorrow so that you actually had people reach retuning into the stream and yeah it was it was rough 
it was really really rough and it was like it's almost relentless as well because they're just firing the stream at you there's like no breaks like you just match after match after match after match so i do literally i do like a, you know close to 100 matches in a day on polaris we do maybe 16 unless it's a uh uh one of the um uh, team events then it will be a lot more but yeah it's, it's, so it's it's a, a big difference I think the best way I can describe it is, um, you ever seen the, the, the movie Bill and Ted's Bogus Journey? Yes, of course I have. One, one of the all-time great movies, classic. right? One fast, absolute classic. We you know where they go into the phone box at the end, they come back and learn to play guitar. That's essentially what I did. Like I was in like, most, like, so Polaris, like I said, we'll do 16 matches. I've done 20 events, I think, for Polaris. And you look at that, like 16, 20, it's about 250-ish things. I would do that on the space of a weekend. I did it for like, you know, five, I did it five or six times in a row. So I got this huge amount of like commentary experience very, very quickly in a really intense form and not having anybody else to play off. So it was a really cool experience. So when I came back to do Polaris afterwards, my commentary was way better um, because I, I then understood how to do all of the different parts of it as well, rather than just being like a technical analyst. Do you take your work home after that? So you go home and you don't stop talking and Chelsea's like, mate, just shut up. No, it was the complete opposite. I was like, I was wrecked after these things because they were like middle of the night or whatever. It was like, it was, it was a savage, savage experience. Like, um, and plus my, the first one I did was about two weeks after my daughter was born. So I was like, uh, I was, you know, relatively sleepless nights anyway. And then, you know, trying to look after Chelsea's who's postpartum and then going into doing this thing in the evening and coming back and having, to, you know, be a dad, try and recover for the next day. So like that was that was brutal. That was a brutal, brutal uh, shift that one. But you know, I just want to curl up in a ball afterwards and go to sleep. Well, we're talking about your commentary now, so I just carry on like what we what yep. I was just saying there. So really, <laughs> Sorry. no, that's absolutely fine. So, and well, my my last little bit really was that um, you know you you're a gym owner of uh, Escapeology, yep, uh, up in up in Cambridge, like you say, when you run that with um with your missus with uh, with Chelsea. Yep. Um, I, I'd like. I like to go back to the commentary sort of thing because mm -hmm. it, it's quite interesting for me, really, because jujitsu uh, as a as a visual platform has exploded over the last yeah over the last ten years, really, because um, it, it's very much kind of like if you think about judo in the Olympics, it, it's there. Um, yeah. But I, in my my personal opinion, that the the ground game of judo got taken out. Um, purely because it wasn't a great spectacle for people that didn't really know what was going on. Yeah. But now, you know, jiu-jitsu is one of the biggest growing sports in the world and and more people understand it because they're watching MMA, you know, the ground game, the commentators there are, are, are talking and explaining about what's going on, you know, like your Joe Rogans and, and so on and mm. so forth. You know, like Daniel goes on to um, Cage Warriors and, and commentates yeah. on there as well. So the the awareness of what's going on on the floor actually becomes becomes more apparent. So you know how did you how did you get approached to to start doing the commentary for it? Because you know you you were just basically working in gyms and competing yourself, weren't you? Yeah. So I um, the, the the first Polaris event that I commentated on was Polaris three, so it was very very early. So I fought on Polaris. I was actually scheduled to. Uh, they asked me to fight on Polaris one, but I couldn't. Because I was in the US, so I fought on Polaris two, and then they that approached one. me about yeah. I, they approached me after that about coming on to do commentary because they didn't want me to go on the show again. Essentially, um, 
you know, and I, I like for when was that? That would have been 2016, I think, was when it was doing. So they just literally just came up to me. Like it's run by, in case you don't know, Scramble's pretty, uh, no, sorry, Polaris is run by Scramble and Tatami together. So they put a lot of the energy. I'm sponsored by Scramble anyway. And I've known Ben and Matt and those guys. So they pulled me in because they weren't happy with the commentary that was going on in the, the first couple of events. And they wanted, they thought I'd be a, a, a good person to do it. Like I'd put up a few um, like match breakdowns on YouTube and things like that for people. And they enjoyed it and they, they thought I'd do a pretty good job at it. You know, they've been to like, Matt had been to seminars of mine um, that I taught and, you know, I can kind of go off on tangents and talk about stuff and I'm quite technical in what I can do um, and, and hopefully kind of make it somewhat entertaining as well. So yeah, that's, was, I really fell into it. And the first time I did it, it was like a, it was quite a shock um like I, commentary is, is 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 it can be quite difficult because you don't there's lots of technical things that go into it so you you don't want to talk over the other people you don't necessarily know when to talk you don't know like the first time you do it or whatever you don't have like necessarily a good rapport with the people you're commentating with um you know you don't want to say the wrong thing you don't want to say something stupid uh so there's lots of parts that go into it and josh palmer who was like the lead commentator like shout out to josh josh is amazing um he he to me he's probably the best commentator in grappling i think by by far he's he's super professional he's also really knowledgeable about jiu-jitsu um so he having him there it was it was quite easy to learn how to commentate because i could kind of see what he was doing and you know asking questions and come back and forth from there so it was a really good experience you know it was a nice learning experience to have in there as well i can imagine sometimes when you watch uh watch commentary um especially in sort of like longer platforms um, yeah. you know like flow grappling and 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 a, and a few other ones as well is that the dead the dead air time can be kind of it's it can be kind of kind of a bit strange experience but i guess there's only so many words that you can talk about something and if nothing's going on that's particularly exciting you know whether someone's in sort of like a pin situation and no one's really doing anything at the, at the time there's only so much you can say at once really about it yeah it becomes really challenging um we actually on polaris we had a situation with uh it was i think it was the maybe the second or third show i did it was jazari matuda versus um lauren foyer and the match was essentially jazari knee sliding spinning a top spinning around and then lauren um recovering and it was like i think 15 minutes of that and it got to the point that like we couldn't say any more about it it was like so it was a very weird experience to have to try to commentate over because it was like oh she's she's knee slid again and Lauren's recovered and we're back into it. It was a very odd experience to do. So then you have to pull in other things outside of it. So like, you know, I I know Jazari, she's fought Chelsea a few times. So I know the background of, you know, where she's at. Same with Lauren as well. Um, you can, you know, preview what's going to come up. If you know it's the same kind of like, not necessarily stalling, but not a huge amount is happening. No one's really progressing. It's like, you know, remember later in the show, we've got, you know, X or Y who's going to compete next. There should be a barn burner of a fight. You know, and you can fill those little bit of gaps, providing you have done the research on the competitors as well, or you have some prior knowledge of what they're, uh, what, you know, what they've been around. You know, it's that, then then you can start to fill the dead air time, which is where a lot of commentators go along, and something that that Josh is very very good at. So, for I know myself, Dan, Chelsea, um, we always like research all of the competitors as much as we can beforehand. So we'll have like lists of notes. And then we can start, we have like little facts that we can pull out and start talking about. So it's like, 
you know, for Jazari, for example, it might be like, you know, actually, one of our commentators, Charles, has uh, competed against her on numerous occasions. How do you feel that, uh, you know, you can bring in that side of things as well because you have that additional information and you can kind of develop the characters of the, the competitors, you know what I mean? So uh, the teams is a good a good example because we often have, um, or the uh, they did the, the middleweight Grand Prix recently because you'll end up with guys that have faced each other before and so you can be like, well, you know, in in you know ADCC trials, uh, you know Keith he matched up against this guy. It was a very very close fight. You know, let's see if they go up again and how Keith's, you know, whatever his his tactics will have changed. So that makes it a little bit easier in that situation as well. I feel like sometimes the the actual um, production that you're working on kind of has an obligation to to maybe give you a give you those notes as well because you know they're asking you to do to do something you know it's like um like a newscaster where they've got the teleprompter in front of them and like someone's feeding them the the kind of the words to say or the background notes so they actually know what they're talking about but I kind of it's in a way it's kind of a little bit like this isn't it like I wouldn't want to go into talking to somebody blind that I've never yeah never met before or never spoken to and then kind of just wing it and and make stuff up so yeah i i guess but that must be like a really long-winded sort of thing for you because the pro- yeah i think i'm i'm in terms of researching and the commentary stuff i'm in the sport like i'm i'm continually you know looking at matches i'm watching matches i know who the competitors are so it's actually a lot easier um and i have quite a good memory for random stuff random facts random matches that i've seen um so it becomes a little bit easier it's actually easier for me to do it than say the production crew who are you know they're in the filming and producing tv events world rather than being in the jiu-jitsu world so the notes that they would provide wouldn't necessarily be of value to me um it's all about like me being able to research because also the thing that we'll do as well i certainly do as well as i'll go and watch matches that they've competed in so that i know what their style is what the things that they like to do um and get some of that background on them as well and that's that that helps dramatically because you can kind of start to see how things are going to play out you'll often hear us talking about like how do you think this match is going to play out it's like well we know that let's let's do someone dan has got a very good guillotine you know really strong butterfly guard however wrestling's not that strong blah, blah, blah. and you can you can play off on that side of things as well um do you get to a point with with it because you know you say you're, you're integrated in it and you're doing it day in day out you know, yeah. you, you coach jiu-jitsu, you go and do seminars, you know, around, around the country or wh- around where you are, you commentate, you're watching it. Do you yeah. ever feel like you kind of burn out with it a little bit? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. If we've got like a really hectic schedule, um, there's times that I just kind of like step back a little bit and just need some space just to to, to not necessarily be in the, the jiu-jitsu world so much. Um, you know, that's, that's what happened after uh after my last match against hobson like i just needed a breakaway i spent like three months training for that match um it was very intense uh and i needed to kind of like pull back from from training intently from being in the space where i was always trying to you know push my my you know cardio technique whatever it was um and and to take a step back and then relax more and go back to the enjoyment of jiu-jitsu so yeah i regularly take kind of breaks from different areas you know we'll have seminar breaks where i don't don't want to be in in you know when you're teaching seminars it's effectively performing you know you're on stage in front of somebody you're trying to give them a really positive experience so we'll pull back from doing seminars 
or I'll get like more classes covered so I won't have to teach as much or I won't compete, I won't go to competition, just different things like that. What does Tom Barlow, the jiu-jitsu guru, do outside of jiu-jitsu when you've got that downtime? You know, have you got any outside passions that that, that you like I, to go to? I, I try to nap as hard as I can. No. Um, I thought you were going to say, I like to knit there. <laughs> no, 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 that's Chels. Chels does all of the crafting. She does like knitting, baking, everything. Honestly, no, like I I, I, I get a lot of enjoyment through, through doing jiu-jitsu and being in the sport. So even when I'm when I'm outside, mostly I try to go back to kind of I'm using the time as recovery as much as possible to like recover, recuperate my sleep, my health, those side of things. So even when I'm outside in jiu-jitsu, it's, it's rare that I'm on like a full 100% break from it. Like I, I probably in 20 years, I've never done that. It's it's more that I'm just mentally switching from a different element, like not having to be as performative or as uh, as focused on training and that allows me to decompress because I enjoy jiu-jitsu at the end of the day. It's my, it's my hobby as well as my, my job. Um, and I, I shift things around in that way. Like in, in you know, other stuff that I, I do, I used to spend, you're down in Devon, right? You That's right. Yeah. Yeah. So I spent 18 years down in Plymouth. So I, you know, I used to go out surfing quite a lot. Um, we now live on a river. So we go up paddle boarding, um, you know, just, just hanging out with people, chilling, relaxing, stuff like that. I think some people really can't grasp the idea of of um, of like a work life balance. Really, <laughs> I mean, I, I mean, I've just completed um, a, a twenty two year uh, career in the military. So, and I mean, I, I I've I've just opened my own little jujitsu school as well, and um, I, I, and now I'm a therapist, so I do something called mm. the Bowen technique and and sports massage as as well. And I primarily started those things because. One, I was in a job where I was working for myself. I was working in the gym, so I was a PTI by yeah. trade, so writing programs, running gyms, and all that yeah. sort of thing. Um, and I didn't really have, I didn't really have a boss, so I was doing everything myself. I was, I could be as proactive as I wanted to be, or I could be as lazy as I wanted to be. Now, the latter end, the lazy side of it, some people might argue I am, but. You know, I like to be productive with my time and, my, yeah. you know, my time management goes well. So when I when I left, I couldn't really see myself going into kind of doing that you know, nine to five office job because one, mentally, my capacity for that would probably diminish and, you know, I'd start to fade a little bit. And I also wanted to do things and try and make a living out of something that I enjoyed doing. Yeah. Um, so that that work life balance with the family with doing doing the things that you like doing it and getting paid for it I think I think works out really well and um, you know like you're saying your 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 time is obviously quite precious you're you're you've now developed and and got to the point in your career now where you've got lots going on as well but do you find that you have to really focus on to work on that work life balance as well. Yeah, that's something that I'm always going off in different directions, like a little bit too far. Um, so I'm always actually Chelsea is very good at like pulling me back down into like, okay, we need to take a break here. Um, one of the best things that we did recently was we now have like a four day work because we were we would always either be competing or teaching seminars on weekends, so we wouldn't get a lot of downtime. So now we actually only teach at our gym for four days in a week. We teach Monday through Thursday, and then the weekends are normally like either sometimes we don't do anything like last weekend we just didn't do anything we just chilled out and relaxed and then you know this weekend Chelsea's up at the comp on Sunday 
so by shifting to a four day week, it made a huge difference to our, our kind of like ability to, or to our work-life balance. Essentially, it went from working all the time to dropping it back down. Um, and that's, you know, it's, it's absolutely massive. Um, and with fear, it's getting a little daughter as well is getting a little bit easier now because she started to go to nursery. So whereas before we we're having to do all of our, our work, so to speak, it, the stuff that we're doing during the day, so like admin, like running our online thing and whatever else, it would have to be around her. So she'd be in the environment as well. And that's always like you have like one eye on her and whether she's going to kill herself or whether she's painting on walls or whatever she's trying to do. Um now she's at nursery so we have like these blocks of time which are more available to us that we can either choose to recover more which is often what we actually do um or like focus on the specific tasks that we have going on as well yeah uh, having kids thrown into the equation is uh especially when they're young is 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 quite mentally Savage. draining to a point <laughs> yeah yeah we've had that she's going through a phase at the moment i think one of the hard things about kids is they're never like they're always changing, like they'll do something great for a little bit and then they'll suddenly change to the other, to, to, to being like a hellion. So at the moment she's waking up at about 5.30ish in the morning, which, you know, it's not too bad, except we often don't get home until 9, 9.30. By the time we've decompressed, it's quite late in the evening and then you're getting woken up. So we're getting like, you know, five hours sleep a night, just consistently, which isn't ideal for recovery uh, on, on any level. And she's been doing that for probably two or three months. And that has been just grinding us down slowly over time. Um, and her as well, you know, she's, she's, she's getting tired because she's waking up so early. So we've been trying to figure out how to solve this solution. But I always think that kids are like, um, like you before kids, I was like, man, I, I don't know how I'm going to fit this child in. It's going to be crazy. And then now when I look back on my life, I was like, I had so much free time not to, not to worry about it. Like we'd come, you know, we come back from, from teaching like so depending on where we go we might take her to seminars we might not but if we come back uh let's take the polaris weekend as a good example i left at my mum's, um went up to polaris worked on polaris for the day slept overnight in southampton drove up to a seminar um sunday morning in oxford drove back here and then when i got back it wasn't like now i can relax it was like now you're a dad again and you have to go back to being the job of a dad until like she goes to sleep and then it's like okay now i can finally get that little bit of time to decompress and go from there it's it's challenging i love it when people put stuff up on social media and they go oh look i've just got you know this little bundle of love has just come through the door isn't she so beautiful <laughs> and, I'm, and i'm real blunt with it all i just put is something like welcome to the club yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's pretty much it it's, <laughs> it's they're, they're, like kids are amazing they are it's such an, an awesome experience being a parent but they're like they are hard work you know I, I think I was pretty fortunate that when I became it I was quite real with I knew it was going to be challenging like I fully expected to not have lots of sleep you know for it to be a grind um, I wasn't fully prepared for it but I feel like I had a good idea of what having a child would be like and I think a lot of people don't go in with that attitude they don't go in with like, this is, you know, this is going to be wonderful. You know, our, our child's going to be perfect and they'll sleep all the time. It's like, no, you got to be prepared for that. Like, they're going to be tough. They're going to be really, really challenging. They're going to, you know, test you in ways that you didn't think possible. Like yesterday, my, I had a migraine and my 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 child, you can find it on Chelsea's Instagram, is climbing up me saying, climbing daddy mountain, climb daddy mountain and standing on my neck. And I'm like, this is, 
this is dad life 101 <laughs> and this is why i'm always tired so uh, yeah i think that helped me having a very real attitude about what i was getting myself into you know i think that because we had fear a little bit later on or i had fear when it was a little bit later on you know? talking about kids uh, i'd love to talk to you a little bit about kind of your background you mentioned there you know you you spent a lot of time uh down in plymouth so you know yeah. where where did you grow up and how did you get into the martial arts jiu-jitsu journey so i grew up and i actually grew up very close to where i live now maybe five miles away in cambridge um and then i, I was here and then i went down to to plymouth because i mostly because i wanted to surf i got into surfing when i was like 14 15 i started um um you know going down to croyd pretty regularly or whenever we could um and yeah, so I fell into kind of surfing and I was like, cool, if I've got this opportunity, I may as well not just go somewhere that I want to do a course or like go to university. I may as well go somewhere that I want to, you know, have the other things as well, like surfing, for example. Um, so that's the reason I went down to Plymouth. Around at the same time, so when I was about 15, 16, I, I, like, I think I, I first saw like my first Bruce Lee movie and I was like, yes, want to be Bruce Lee. That is what I'm going to, uh, that's, that's, that's where I want to be going um i'd done a little bit of judo beforehand but like that was like the moment that i was like you know i'm gonna start martial arts as a i'm not gonna say an adult because i was only 15 or 16 but that's where i want to i want to do that i want to get some experience in it there wasn't any jkd clubs around where i was so i started out in laogar uh, which is a mix of like kung fu and kickboxing so there's some forms and stuff so i could i could feel a bit like i was you know doing that kind of thing and then um tire boxing as well so i was doing those two back to back because this was 97 96 97 so there wasn't really any jiu-jitsu like uh brazilian jiu-jitsu mma was virtually non-existent i think there may have been one show in the uk or two shows in the uk and it just wasn't around you couldn't do mma it wasn't really on the radar it was still thought of like as human cockfighting in fact i remember when i was working at a petrol station i remember reading an article about human cockfighting comes to the uk and it was like okay yeah it's just mma um <clears throat> So I started training then, and then the other benefit at Plymouth, there was a JKD club as well. So I saw it on the, the sports and societies. I thought, oh, cool. So I can do that. I can, I can become Bruce Lee. I can surf, and I can get a degree at the end of it, which is cool. So then I went in, and um, it took me a while to join the club because I was living, we were in halls, uh, which is like a mile and a half, two miles from the university. So I couldn't get to the, the classes regularly until my second year, and then I just started training in that. And I just stuck at it and, you know, I, I found my interest was in the MMA side of things, like the grappling side specifically. And yeah, just, just fell into it that way. I think during that time, there, like you say, there weren't that many, um, there weren't that many jiu-jitsu clubs uh, around at that time. And I think the only ones really that were actually quite live were, were, were up north really, sort of like along the M62 corridor, people that were actually opening places that that actually did some form of you know jiu-jitsu whether yeah. it was catch wrestling or sambo or something like that you had um some of the judo clubs were starting to get into the groundwork side of things in like the very early 2000s you had mauricio uh, the first jiu-jitsu seminar i ever took was Maurice. no it was rick young i think it was i went to a rick young seminar in like 2003 it was either rick young or mauricio gomez they were one of the first two people that i didn't like rick young was like a brown belt still at the time so in fact, it might have been even before that, but like there was nothing. And then Mauricio came over and Roger came over and Braulio came over like 2004, 2005 time. I think it was around then. Um, might have, Braulio might have been over when he was a brown belt for like a few months or whatever, but it, that was in like Birmingham. There was a little bit in London. 
There's a guy called Roger Brooking in London as well. Roberto Attila, who I think was over in Bournemouth somewhere like that. But that was it. That was like that was jujitsu in the UK at the time. It was really there was nothing else. I think one of the biggest influences is Eric Paulson. Like looking back on it, because Eric would always come over. Like I did an Eric Paulson seminar in like 2001. You know, if anybody doesn't know who Eric is, he's like he was um, the first or one of the first uh, non-Westerners to win a Shuto title. And Shuto was like MMA. What if you look at like uh, early UFC, like UFC one that Hoist Gracie won, it was like a um, a tough man competition. You had like these different arts coming in and then Hoist who won. But it was all like mostly predominantly strikers. They were all kind of brawlers. Shuto, on the other hand, was like, they'd already started introducing like kickboxing and tie boxing, like the grappling side of things from like the pro wrestling was already involved in it. So like early Shuto, like, you know, I'm talking like 94, 95, even back when Eric was competing at like slightly, slightly earlier than that, like early 90s looks more like modern MMA than the UFC did when the UFC came about. Um, so when Eric started coming over, he already had this kind of long history of doing modern MMA, heavily influenced by like Hickson and Higgin Machado and people like that as well. So he used to teach seminars all around the country and really introduced grappling through like his style CSW to the UK. And then a lot of people kind of got into grappling, started looking for Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu coaches around the area. And I feel like there's so many of the old school coaches that I know who started training with Eric. That was like their first real introduction to MMA was going to an Eric Paulson seminar. Or even ta more tangentially, going to like a Dan in the Cento seminar who Eric was at, and then Eric would kind of come back and do like an MMA seminar as well. So I think Eric is really, he's got a big influence on the UK jiu-jitsu scene, even though it's kind of more in the background. If you talk to like people from my generation, the amount of people who have trained with them is staggering, you know. If you were down in Plymouth and you, you were traveling up to up to these different places to, to learn different techniques, yeah. were, you, were you very much kind of, got a couple of mats down you know you do your jeet kundo um find a couple of training partners and you're just kind of practicing you know this sort of stuff almost kind of like garage jiu-jitsu like back in the day kind of no so we were when i started in the university club and then the my instructor there a guy called anton st james who's very big now into like the filipino martial arts world like he's one of the top um top guys in the country he quickly in about 2002 he opened the full-time academy um, I mean, he's trained with just scores of people. Like he's a, you know, he's a, a crew under Master Toddy. He was training him back in the 70s. Um, you know, spent a bunch of time training with like various different instructors. Like he was black belt. There was like 15 of black belts kind of thing. And all of like, like traditional martial arts. So like he's a very highly ranked in, um, what was the style of his karate? I can't remember what style of the karate he was. Very, very highly ranked in those kind of things. And fell into like the, the JKD and the screamer side of things more. He opened his academy in 2002 which is the same time as I was finishing up university. So I started teaching there pretty early. Like I was teaching part-time from like 2003. No, 2004. When I, I think I got my, my black belt under him in 2004. Um, no, 2003, sorry. And then I started teaching for him pretty much full-time then. And we were doing like kickboxing predominantly, some of the FMA, some of the JKD side of things. Because my passion was in uh like more side of the ground side of things and coming into mma i've spent time training with eric like i went over to the us and trained with eric a bunch um one of my claims to fame is i was one of uh, ken shamrock's sparring partners uh for when he was fighting chemo so the same time that i was training with eric over in the u in, in la he was also we were going down to like the lions den in san diego and training ken 
So I was getting beaten up by Ken while I was over there, which was very entertaining because Ken's about twice my size. I was just about to um, say, you must be like half his size and half his weight. Yeah, it was ridiculous. <laughs> but Eric would just find people to throw in there. It was it was, it was a very funny experience training with doing that whole thing. I would just get beaten up regularly. You know, it was good. <laughs> it was a, an interesting experience. Ken's uh, Eric's advice to me when I first went into school. So when we got the first session that we got to to spar with Ken, he was, do you know who Vernon White is? Vernon yes. Tiger White? This is old school MMA. Like he was, he was king of the, I think he was king of Pantrace and he might have won king of the cage as well, but one of the title holders. Very good, like legitimately a good MMA guy. So he's sparring with Ken and the first thing we see is like Ken just knock him out, like throws this punch, knocks out Vernon. And then Vernon's like laying on the ground, semi-conscious and Ken stands over and he goes, you okay? And Vernon's like, yeah. He's like, well, get up then. And then he's going again a little bit and then he knocks him down again. And he's just like, oh. And then Eric's like, okay, you're in the ring, go. And I'm like, what? And he's like, just keep moving around. Don't let him hit you. Don't try and trade with him. I was like, all right, fine. And um, I did the exact opposite. I stood there for a second and Ken hit me with this right. I remember this right hand punch just coming towards my head and it hit me like a freight train, like square in my forehead. And I was like, oh, okay, running around. And like, I just, just that was my, that was, a, it was my introduction to sparring with Ken. It was very um, entertaining. It must be uh, quite was, surreal doing that as well because oh, yeah, know, Ken, Ken's like, one was, of the OGs, right? Yeah, yeah, I was like 20, 23 at the time, something like that. And um, yeah, just over there sparring with Ken Shamrock, helping him prep for Tito. You know, I, I sparred with like, I did through training with Eric, I sparred with so many guys. I sparred with Vernon and um, a guy called Jay Martinez who, was, who ran, it wasn't the Shark Tank, there was another one that, no, it was the Shark Tank. That's what he ran, which was up in Orange County. Like, Again, producing legitimate fighters. They used to cross train with the Lions then all the time. So I was training with those guys. Um, uh, who's the guy that won the, the Ultimate Fighter? James, uh, James Wilkes. I was sparring with James Wilkes as well and training with him a bunch. Uh, like I was training at the Inosano Academy with all those guys. Yeah, it was a really odd experience. Really, really strange experience um, to do that. Yeah. <laughs> Did you, do you ever manage to get over to some of the, um, some of the actual, you know, Gracie Jiu-Jitsu academies like Hanzo's or or any of those guys? No, I never I never got to do that. I was training mostly with Eric. So Eric would have guys come in. So I did a bunch of classes with Higgins. I went to Higgins once. Um, this is when it was in Hermosa Beach. Uh, we rocked up. I think it was Hermosa. I was, I know, Eric was driving me around everywhere. So I'm not 100% sure it was. Uh, we went to those guys. Um, but it was mostly with Eric and people that Eric had have around him. Um, like some of the old school black belts that would be teaching out of different academies or teaching out the Inosano Academy as well. But I never went to like, never went to Hickson's Garage or anything like that or uh, the original Gracie Academy or Henzo's or any of those kind of things. I was always more on the West Coast than the East Coast. So fast forwarding a little bit, you managed to get your black belt after training for a year, I believe I read somewhere with uh, with Braulia, who's, who's just come down to um, do a seminar with you guys. Um, yeah, so I, I started training with Braulio. Like I went after I trained with Eric, I was competing MMA still. So I was like uh, I was training with my friends up in London, um, Matt and James, um, both very like kind of I would say early pioneers of MMA in the UK. So James won uh James Nicole Evans won um a couple of like regional so UK MMAC, he won the title there, fought on Cage Rage, uh, hang on, no, whoops, yeah, Cage Rage because that's no longer around. Fought on Cage Rage a bunch, did a really good job in that. Matt won, same thing, UK, uh, UK MMAC title. I fought on that show a few. So I was like traveling up to train with them, doing mostly MMA and MMA-based grappling and then training with my guys and helping them grow and putting some competitors down in, in Plymouth. 
around about end of 2005, 2006. Uh, actually, I'm going to skip back a little bit. When I was over in the US the first time, uh, there was a guy called Paul Kelly who runs martial arts concepts up in somewhere uh, near Birmingham. can't remember the name of the place. Uh, uh, Dudley. Dudley? Dudley. Dudley. Uh, Dudley. He's up there. Um, and he was over at the same time. So I was hanging out with him. And he said he was training with this guy called Bradley on a steamer. Uh, and Eric was like, oh, Bradley was really good. You should go and train with him. Well, Bradley's in Birmingham. I'm in Plymouth, which is a good four-hour drive apart. Uh, so I didn't actually get to start training with Braulio until the end of, I think it was like early 2005, uh, early 2006, right at the end of 2005, when I met him at a um, martial arts show and like Paul introduced me to Braulio and I was like, okay, I'm going to come up and train. He was like, cool, come up and train. So I started coming up and training, having an hour of seminars. And then in 2011, he promoted me to my black belt. So it was about five and a half, yeah, five, five and a half, six years, something like that it took me. Yeah, yeah Bradley is quite a, um, he's a, he's a very charismatic guy, isn't he? Um, you know, yeah. he's helping, uh, he's helping out with the Rollathon at the moment with, uh, with, with the real guys. Yeah. Um, yeah, he's, uh, he always makes me smile when, whenever I, whenever I listen to his commentary, um, and he's, he's got a list of his accolades that, you know, yeah, pages I mean, it's, it's, of stuff. It's in, like the amount of stuff that he's done is incredible. Like, and he is—he's one of the most. If you ever get a chance to go to Braulio, one of Braulio's seminars, it's always worth attending. Not, I mean, he'll always show some awesome techniques, some really great concepts. Um, he has a fantastic way of teaching, but the, like the dude is so charismatic, it is unreal. You can, you can almost like if you're at something like Europeans, which might have four, four to six thousand people at, and Braulio walks in, like you know he walks in. And it's like it's a it, it's it's just weird like being around him, and I mean I've I've, I've known him since like for a really long time. Like, we're really good friends, um, so like to me it's just Braulio, but like for everybody else it's like oh my god. But he it's does like, have. It's this like charisma. what we were talking. It was like what we were talking about at the beginning of this. Is yeah. like you know he is he is that personality. And, you know when you're talking about he walks into a room and everyone goes oh it's Braulio. It's like yeah. You know he's an ADCC Hall of Famer, so yeah. you know he's got this got this aura of uh, perception that people kind of have got over yeah. him already. I think I think part so with Braulio, it's it's very different to when someone like Hodger walks into the room. You know, Hodger to to me, Hodger's probably the greatest jujitsu player of all time, bar none. Like he, you know, the stuff that he did, like. His his runner, I think, it was a 2009 Worlds where he cross-choked everybody from Mount. Like, nine matches is insane. Like, no one has ever even come close to doing that. Um, and the same with his run at, like, ADCC, just submitting everybody. Again, no one, like, it's it's his, he's, he's just amazing, right? But when he walks into a room, it's a very different experience. He's nowhere near as, like, large if that makes sense like his 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 personality you'll see people kind of go over and talk to him but he's kind of more reserved and like really kind of chill when Braulio comes in it's like everybody's already having a good time like the moment that he walks into the room it's a it's a it's a it is an amazing experience to see it happen um and really yeah it's 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 cool like I, I try to I try to have like one percent of the one percent of the charisma of Braulio that's my goal like if I could do that I would be a happy happy person <laughs> a fair one. Um, I'd like to talk to you a little bit about competition versus recreation um yeah. guys that, that that train. I mean, kind of what's what's your what's your perception on it? Um, 
I, I think it depends on you have different everybody's got their own goals when they go to train right like some people are just doing it for fun um some people want to like unwind and relax some people want to be like competitors i think everybody regardless of why they do jujitsu can find benefit in competing um and training like a competitor as well like when you train for if there's a few like obvious, obvious benefits when you train for a competition you have an end goal in mind like you know that let's say in six weeks time you're going to compete typically that means that then your diet's going to get cleaned up so you're going to eat better you're going to train a little bit harder you're going to get a little bit more recovery and sleep um without any other benefit of the competition those are three really good things to get because you just look after yourself a little bit more because you have this end goal in mind in terms of the actual day of competition you're putting yourself into an environment and in a state where you are experiencing stress. Like you know that you're going to go onto a mat and you're going to have to fight another dude who's also trying to rip your head off. So you have like long-term stress build up for like six weeks. Like enter this competition, you get that little adrenaline dump and then you have like slow cortisol adrenaline going through up until the day of the competition. Then you have a massive adrenaline dump again. Or you might have a massive adrenaline dump again. And understanding how to deal with that kind of stress is incredibly important for people. Like the outcome of a competition is way less important to me than the people just going in and doing it because it helps you grow as either an athlete or as a person. Like putting yourself in those those stressful situations, they make you just generally kind of more chill. You know, like you, like the the things that seem to stress you out before not so big anymore right like no one no one's out there really trying to rip my head off unless they are trying to rip your head off which is a different situation but you can be a lot <laughs> like it it, it, it kind of helps you know your boss isn't okay yeah he's my boss whatever you know it's, he's not trying to kill me <laughs> not in the same way anyway so i think those the the mental side of things really help um and then it just comes down to like what do you want to do do you want to try and be a comp like a competitor or do you just want to do it as a hobby and then compete on the side you know, compete every once in a while. Like we have tons of guys at our gym that will just like every now and again drop into a competition. And we have guys that will train, you know, they'll do a competition every weekend and then guys in between. And then some guys who don't compete, but they still come to our comp classes because they want that more intense side of training. So yeah, I think tons of benefits to competing for everybody. Um, I don't really see a downside most of the time. How do you find that? And I I find this quite quite interesting from, you know, starting what I've just started is how do you find, I'm going to talk a little bit about grading to an extent. Mm -hmm. How do you find grading the guys that are up against the, you know, the the constant competitors to the guys that are recreationally doing jiu-jitsu? How do you find the comparison of, of doing that? Because also to throw into that mix as well, You've got age ranges, you've got, you know, different physical abilities as well, um, because, you know, you might have a, let's talk blue belt, for instance, you know, a guy that's a recreational blue belt, but then you've got another blue belt that competes all the time, and he's an absolute killer, he's like murking the purple belts because he's like in the gym, you know, five, five days a week, training twice a day, um, but he's kind of like, he's the different stage of the guy that's just wanting to turn up, you know, once, once a day, every day of the week, coming for a bit of a social because it's like a mental thing for him too. Yeah. Um, so, I think, I think you've kind of hit the nail on the head. Like I don't compare those two. 
like they're on very different trajectories like the guy who's a blue belt and you know going into competitions regularly and wants that side of things he's on a different path than the guy who's coming in recreationally like i would look at it okay how's that blue belt the, the competition blue this, this is my right hand he's the blue belt in the competition <laughs> you know how's he doing in competitions you know is he up against like is he progressing is he winning those competitions you know is he giving the guys that who are winning like a tough match um like how old is he for example uh you know like what are his goals like if it's a blue belt who's like 20 or like 19 super young probably going to stay a blue belt longer than somebody like even who are an active competitor than somebody who's like 25 30 or 25 mid 20s because i want to get them experience in the black belt categories as an adult so they might get pushed on a little bit faster the other guys might get pushed on a little bit slower and then that recreational guy it's the same thing like how does he do against someone who's also like in their 40s also training twice a week you know also has kids you know is he developing his technique is he making like the common mistakes that we we want to avoid you know uh, is he progressing you know does he have a good attitude in training so I, we never compare people in that way it's like where are you where are you going and where do you want to be and how can we help you get there the fastest what's going to be the best route for you to progress through the through the ranks so it's very very individual i was like asking that question because you know, there's always little bits in between different types of coaches that that yeah. um, that that have have a different kind of form of answer to it, um, as well. I mean, how do you find? I mean, you've been coaching for a long time, so yeah. how do you find coaching helps your jujitsu? Do you think it does, or is it kind of like does it hinder it a little bit because it's taking away like your training time? The vast majority of my jujitsu, I've always been my own coach. Like I've never, except for the times that I spent over training at AOJ, where I had like Gio Haffer coaching me for like six weeks at a time or whatever, I was always my own coach. So from even before I started really doing jujitsu, I was already teaching MMA and like the ground side of MMA, working with Eric, doing like CSW, like I'm a coach under Eric as well. So I was teaching the CSW things. It forced me to break down like techniques. Because if you can't understand the technique, then I definitely can't show it. I can't relay it to someone very easily. The better I understand it, the more easily I can relay it to somebody usually. Uh, so even though I wasn't <clears throat> actively drilling all the time or able to drill, mentally I was engaged. Every single class I'm engaged in trying to you know, deliver this information the best way I can, um, make it understandable to people, being able to break it down easier. And then I do. I used to do this all the time. I do it less so now because I'm a lot more experienced. But whenever I was teaching, I would also be researching the techniques that I was teaching, because I don't. I don't believe that I know everything in jujitsu. I don't believe that I am the best communicator. Um, the tons of people out there that are far more skilled than me, better communicators, and I can learn from them, and I can then take that information and impart it to, to my students. <clears throat> you know, some people give really nice. Um, like visual metaphors for things some people give very good descriptions of things if i can learn all of that try to impart it to my students that helps me and that helps them grow and it helps me grow as quickly as possible so that's what i used to do i do that more so now because i am a lot more experienced and i've been coaching a lot more and i have that kind of body of knowledge but yeah so that was the majority of my my my, my training my drilling was like teaching and then applying that inspiring as well like that's what i would do i would 
teach techniques and I would go when I came to spar, I would then try and use these techniques on my students. And I figured if I could still use them on my students, even though they knew what I was trying to do, then I probably got it pretty good. Yeah, I always found that quite a good analogy to use, really, because, again, I, I'm very similar. So I learn, I learn, I've learned um, a, a lot more through through coaching. I mean, I've I've coached since, oh, I know you shouldn't, <laughs> I've coached since I was like a blue belt, because when mm. I was working in the gyms, every gym I went to, I made a little dojo in there, bought some mats, put it down. Uh, you know and trained and had guys that were in that weren't necessarily interested in jiu-jitsu come down and and we start training so um, I mean I'm not talking like I'm I'm teaching Baron Bolo or, or something like that something quite complex I'm talking like you know real foundation fundamental sort of stuff like side control how to the, the movement patterns of it all and I found that by by teaching that I'm some subconsciously reinforcing those movements to myself as well um, which which kind of um, it, it kind of I think it well for me it make it makes me better. Yeah, absolutely. No, it really does. Like your training isn't just like a physical thing that you do. Like there's a huge mental component. There's all that the the studies that they've done, like the free throw study. You know that one where they took guys and they had guys. Um, there's three groups: group that practiced like physical throwing up three throws, and then they had the group that thought about it, and then they had the group that did nothing. And the guys that practiced did uh, improved. The guys that just thought about throwing three throws improved only slightly less than the guys that actually practiced and the guys that didn't do anything didn't improve at all. So the, the mental side of things is just as important as like the physical side of things. So when you're breaking down techniques, when you're researching techniques, when you're engaged in it as well, that helps you grow and develop. You know, for you, when you're teaching, you're often it can be easier to engage with the subject that you're doing than if you're sat watching someone teach you because you've got like oh what am i having for tea i wonder how the wife's doing are the kids okay you've got all these other thoughts when you're teaching you're physically like wrist like, i've got to, okay we've got to explain this well we've got to do all these different things with our body blah, 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 and you go from there and to your point about teaching as a blue belt like i started teaching as a blue belt because there was no other option you know there weren't any like there was no one teaching jiu-jitsu in really in the southwest like uh, my Darren Yeoman, who was over in um, Torquay, that was it. Me, Darren Yeoman, a couple of guys in Exeter, was the jiu-jitsu scene down in the Southwest for a really long time. But even now, like, if I teach a white belt, often I give too much information and too much detail to them that they don't benefit from it. They know, like, we, all, we often view teaching jiu-jitsu like carving a statue. You start with this, like, lump of clay, and your first goal is to get like a rough outline of what it looks like with zero detail. And as a black belt, like a blue belt can do almost just as good job and often a better job of teaching beginners because they're more enthusiastic. Like they're not getting frustrated with like, why don't you know your left and your right hand? Like this is <laughs> stuff like that. So having like lower grades who are enthusiastic, have the right attitude, teach beginners is also really good. You know, and then it also creates like a natural progression of once those beginners have trained with them for a little bit and they come into your regular classes they're able to take on that greater level of information greater knowledge and they see the difference between the two of like oh this is a purple belt this is now a black belt who's been training 20 plus years it makes a really nice contrast for people as well so people get certainly with beginners they get too hung up on like you got to have like tons of experience to be teacher beginners often it's down to the attitude and as long as you know the, the movements well enough and you can impart that start carving that statue you know make them coachable 
and eventually over time they're going to learn anyway i've made that mistake before where i'm teaching something really quite basic to people that are kind of new to the sport and then you get a little bit too over enthusiastic and you start putting other other bits of details in it and you yeah. just see them kind of stood there or much. sat there going yeah. uh and i'm like that you really don't know what i'm talking about do you know nah. like that nah not at all. <laughs> yeah. like well, if you imagine when someone comes in like jujitsu in itself is completely weird <laughs> like it is so against the natural instincts that you have for people like playing guard for example right was one of the biggest problems that people have is like they try and kick people away like push them away that's totally wrong for playing guard like it's that and you have to train that instinct out of people or like turning your back to stand up because it seems like the most efficient way to stand up off the ground again completely alien to people so if you're trying to teach beginners too much too in depth it's like that it doesn't help them you need it very simple and um we found the best thing that we we ever did was we we created this um positional hierarchy and it's not like you know it's not you know you get four points for a mount or four points for the back it's like it's a framework to understand jujitsu like where am i at on this ladder or this path or this roadmap and where do i need to go to next so you can either go forwards or you can go backwards and irrespective of whether you're top or bottom so to give you an example um let's say the the let's take guard retention as an example right my my i'm an open guard I want my feet on my partner, okay? Or from a passing perspective, they've got their feet on me. The first thing I need to do, get rid of those feet. From there, I'll probably end up on the shins. Once I'm on the shins, I've got to clear the shins and get onto their frames. Once I'm on their frames, I've got to get inside their frames and chest to chest. So that's like four steps. Feet, shins, frames, chest. For the person on the bottom, it's exact opposite. Okay, I'm on the shins, I've got to get them on my feet. You know, I'm on the frames, got to get shins, got to get feet. And it just takes jujitsu, which is this kind of like, insanely complicated thing with all these different guards all these different positions and i think it's like eight different things that we got it down to and it makes it just gives them a complete framework so they know oh this is exactly what i've got to do like i know where i'm at now um where do i go to next that's the next point on the path and by teaching teaching people that framework first and early it made everything else so much easier how do you feel about the the development of jujitsu because i i feel like the whole the whole emphasis and and the sport is is very much I call it like um like a big wheel, you know you've you've got the early days where guys are doing fu fundamental jujitsu you know like the Hodges sort of stuff you know where you're just talking about learning a couple of things being really really good almost sort of like a perfectionist with them to to the point now where people are learning insane amounts of leg entries leg locks to you know rolling barambolos you've got worm guard k guard all these different types of guard there's like you say that there's there's almost kind of like an infinite amount of um techniques and and with those techniques techniques within techniques this is gonna sound yeah. really weird um so where do you kind of see the evolution of 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 it, of it going is it just going to come all the way back around like leg locks and legs are all going to kind of disappear to yeah, a certain you're extent seeing that now like it, it just it tends to follow cycles quite quite regularly so we went through this whole very recently we've been through this cycle of like everybody's using leg locks it's a good example right there was like you know 2015 really good solid advancements in leg locks but 
the, okay, we'll get we'll we'll get back to that in a second. But if you look at the leg locks they're using, these are things that I learned from Eric, two thousand. Like they've been in Sambo for a really long time. The difference is now is the the level of control that people have in them is has increased. Like they're better at controlling, they're better at entering in them. The braking mechanics tend to be better. So they've taken this old school set and just refined it a little bit and then it was killing everybody for a while now what's happened is everybody's got very very good at defending leg locks like the things that were working and that people hadn't necessarily been exposed to no longer work in the same way so we're now coming into a situation where leg locks are being kind of more pushed to the side because everybody's getting better at passing and just able to shut them down so if you're just a leg lock specialist you're going to struggle because the guy's going to be good enough most of the time to shut your leg leg attacks down um and so you then need to work on your you're passing again in your top game um, and the wrestling side of things. So we're now back into more of like a passing side of things. Um, in between that, we had like this back attack stage of things. So if you look at leg locks, it went attacking the legs, then it was back attacks, and now it's passing because they're all kind of interchangeable and interlinked. And that's how the the, the cycle keeps going. It's like something in guard, something that kind of develops on top. Someone then develops something else that counters the thing on top. That develops into like better on top and it just keeps bouncing forwards and forwards and forwards um within that you are always going to have people that specialize in certain areas you know that might have um you know like gay k guard might be a really good k guard for example it might be you know they have just really solid leg drags or birambolas or inversions it doesn't really matter too much but at the the high level principally jiu-jitsu goes from being this huge subject to tiny and small again because you understand the principles of of jujitsu and how no matter where you're at you know how to shut it down you know how to kill the person's posture you know how to take away their their structure their their, their muscle structure kill their hips and it kind of becomes simpler again you know so if you if you watch um i remember when um half a it was fighting Cabrinha and they ended up in 50-50. He inverted out of 50-50 and ended up on Cabrinha's back. And it was like this cool sequence, like very, very awesome. I think it was like the sixth time that half of one world. Uh, I was up at Braulio's at the time. I was hanging out with Braulio, staying in his house. Um, and on the floor, he was like, do you know how he did this? I was like, yeah, he kind of did this thing. And within like five minutes, probably even less than that, Braulio had figured it out, figured out what the counter was and like could already do it and it's because you know the principles behind what it is like and now you see that inversion that half is doing all the time from people kind of it's transitioned into crab rides and like top bolos and things like that and it's just become commonplace but just because something's new doesn't mean that you don't know how to instinctively defend against it you know well, new things are always kind of a, de- a, a kind of a developmental or evolution of uh, of another position. Yeah. I always find so, yeah. like you know, you got your K guards and your worm guards, but all they are really they're just kind of like a, a, a an evolution of a, of an open guard by yeah. by wrapping a gi lapel, you know. And yeah. people have been doing that for for years, but they've just called it something. Yeah, exactly. Like the Brazilian dental floss, which is uh, what is it's essentially. Um... Uh, what's it called? I can't remember what Bikinian calls it. It'll come back to me in a minute. But essentially, it's like a um, like a worm guard without the foot in. One of the most old school sweeps from half guard that there is. Like you feed the lapel through the legs, you come up to your knees, drive over the top, boom, 
like it's one of the most common sweeps that you'll see particularly in master's divisions or from people of my age group it happens all the time you know so there's nothing it just keenan got this other you know dynamic of using like like worm guard and breaking the knee lines and doing a few other different things like that as well um but yeah it's uh, principally the way that you kill it is relatively similar between the two you know and the same with k guard again k guard is nothing k guard's not even new like that is super old school like really really old school that people were like coming underneath the leg like that and trying to hug onto it and, and then transitioning into the uh so either the um some of the upper body attacks or lower body attacks from there. Very, very old school, you know. So yeah, you just keep seeing these things coming in cycles. I'd love to talk to you a little bit just for, you know, sort of a five minutes a little bit about yeah. how how I kind of really reached out to you. I wanted to talk to you for ages if I'm perfectly mm-hmm. honest, but um I'm just really rubbish with with writing Thanks. stuff down, if I'm perfectly honest. Um <laughs> I saw a post which was kind of yep. pertinent to what I'm doing at the moment with uh, with like the business models for for academies yep. and and stuff like that, um, and I, I think this is kind of this is like an an unspoken kind of thing within the jujitsu world is that people think that jujitsu and business is kind of like a a dirty word, you know you yep. shouldn't you shouldn't be in it for for making the money you know making money out of people that you should be doing it for the love and the passion and and all this sort of thing but you know i i i'm i'm very 50 50 with all of it if i can make a living out of teaching jiu-jitsu i would love that but i'm passionate about jiu-jitsu as well you know i i love training and if i can train the people that are my clients technically you know they come through the door they they yep. they, they pay for a service if i can train them to a point where they become socially my friends and also really good through the techniques that I've taught and they improve my jujitsu as well. well. Well, surely that's a positive thing. And we, and we should be um, celebrating that and, and also trying to get more people to do it too. Yeah. Like to me, the whole attitude about not making money for martial arts is r- ridiculous. Like it is one of the most ridiculous things that you've ever had. Like I see it, I even saw it today. Um, there's a guy who's you know uh, he's launching this program to try and help martial arts instructors and like he put up a facebook ad just getting so much hate underneath like you're in a dojo you should do this for the passion it's like to me that doesn't make any sense my goal as an instructor is to impact the largest number of people i can right like within my community with in the world at large now as well the only way i'm going to be able to do that is through being successful by having good communication skills and being able to effectively sell my brand. Like, the, I think the problem where, where people encounter this is where it becomes too focused on profit and on money and it loses the, the, the person, you know, you forget about the person. So every person who walks through the door just becomes another number. Like, okay, this is what they're going to, I'm going to, I'm going to get this off them when they join. This is going to be their first month. This is what they're going to get. We're going to upsell them to this program at this point. You know, they're going to need to buy this bit of kit. This, man, that's terrible. Like to me, that is essentially what the McDojo thing is, but you can charge a fair price for your product and still teach good martial arts, still make a good living from it and not do any of those things. So like when we when people come into our gym, like our gym is really successful. Like we got somewhere around 250 members at the moment. The only reason that we don't have more is because we physically can't fit them in the space. Like we have 
consistently we have between five to 10 people on a waiting list for a class every single night. And these are students that just can't fit into the classes. Um, and like, we have a very, very strong product. We charge a fair price for what we do. If you look at any other sport out there, we charge a very, very fair price for doing it. Like my, my daughter's swimming lessons are 13 pounds a class for half an hour. Okay, okay, that's swimming. Okay, her gymnastics classes were the same. Like, and yet in martial arts, it tends to be like, we got charged two, three quid a class for that. And it's like, why? Like, I know through jujitsu, I see kids that get healthy. They, you know, or in, in fact, any martial arts, it can be anything that's done with an ethical um, sense, like standpoint behind them, right? They get healthy, they improve their fitness, they develop their confidence. They, you know, they um, learn teamwork skills. They learn to socialize. They get all of these additional benefits from it, just like tons of other sports. But yeah, we have this negative this negative mindset about making money from from doing what we love. The more money I make, the more I can reinvest into my community, the more people I can help. You know, like we've just had from a jujitsu standpoint, in the space of like seven days, we had Tommy Langer come to do to a seminar, Charles taught a seminar, we had Dan Strauss come to do a seminar, Braulio taught a seminar, and I taught a seminar last night. Because we're successful, because we can bring people into the gym like that. You know, we have um, been able to employ well we're about to take on a full-time manager who's going to be able to get out of a job that she hates and she can start working for us i'm supporting a guy who is a really good competitor we're able to employ him um, we're supporting another guy who's really struggling at the moment who's doing our videography work who's doing a, a killer job but because he's like a freelance photographer, videography is really struggling in the common climate. So we're able to support him. We have another girl who we're supporting as well, who's also a competitor. Because our gym is successful, we can do this. And we plan on doing it even to more and more people because ultimately that is a feedback loop. The more we help other people, the more we put energy and effort into our gym, the more successful we are, the more people we can help, which then brings more into our gym, which means that we can then help more people. Same with the online side of things. And the way that you go about doing that is by understanding how to market, how to sell yourself, how to communicate well, but all with a really strong ethical standpoint behind it. Like, what do I stand for? What am I going to get out of it? Am I charging a, a fair rate for what I, my time, my energy, the environment that I've created? So yeah, doesn't make any sense to me. Yeah, and and I think if you look at other martial arts as well, and I, and I've noticed this really, especially through, you know, being biased with with the jiu-jitsu's perspective as well. I've trained at quite a lot of um, different gyms over the years, and I think one thing that sells and creates a little bit more of an ambience is when you go into an academy or or, or a club or whatever, and it is nice. Yeah. it's clean it looks new you know it's well maintained the facilities are good they're cleaned i mean i've also i mean i'm i'm speaking to the converted here you've obviously trained the same as i was in some proper spit and sawdust yeah. gyms where like you know you go onto the mats they're about 100 years old they were used in the 60s um they've got hair all over them they've, yeah, they've yeah, not they've not been cleaned the, the the building that that you're in is like a really old rundown yeah. garage yet you're 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 still paying for a service that if i went you know to another club I, yeah granted i'll be paying a, a couple pound extra more but the product 
and the environment that that creates as well um becomes more welcoming yeah i mean again not belittling other martial arts here but you know i there's a there's quite a few karate clubs and stuff um around around by around by me but they're all in like gym halls yeah they're really successful they've got like 30 or 40 people in doing you know doing their their karate but if that was in a bigger place and it was their own facility and technically they're making a living out of that too then that would also generate more you know income revenue and an interest from people because yeah. you know you've got like your mr miyagi dojo that's that's down the road and it's like you know you've got your bonsai trees up and everything's all decked out really nice and it becomes more appealing to people and i think that's what jiu-jitsu is slowly becoming a little bit more with with academies and stuff and people are starting to realize that and the actual benefit of the, the people that they're bringing yeah. into i i completely agree like nobody looks at like aoj is a great example no one looks at aoj and is like they're selling out like and why is that like aoj charges i think they're about 240 dollars to maybe 200 250 dollars a month per per student that's a lot, right? Like, <laughs> that's a fair amount of, of change. It's not huge for like being in California or whatever, but that's what they're charging. The thing about AOJ, when you like, they have a great competition team, highly successful competition team. There, here's a little fact that most people don't know about AOJ is their gym is, it's not every month, but when they first opened, it was painted every single month. It was repainted to keep it looking like that. Like, so I went to AOJ from 2012 last time I was there, I think, was 2016, and I haven't been over since. Um, in that period of time, the gym virtually didn't look any different. Like, and that, to, to like, I mean, in terms of, like, the painting on the walls, um, like, the cleanliness of the floor, the changing rooms, none of that changed because they invested a ton of time and energy into making sure that it stayed at that level. If you look at most other gyms, how many of them can say that? Like they might open these brand spanking new facilities. They look great from like day one, like a year down the line, you know, are they still looking good? Like, do they still look as well as they did? Are they looking a little bit tired now? You know, how are the mat? Oh, why is that paint peeling off the wall? You know, like stuff like that, right? And if you're successful, you can do that side of things. You can keep that, that standard really high because you can, because you're successful. And it feed again, it feeds back into itself. Like one of the things that our gym is, We've copied a lot of stuff from AOJ, but we have a very high volume of women that train with us. Um, partly that's because trail strain, trail strains there, but it's partly because the environment is so welcoming to people. Like it is just, it is open. It it looks clean. You know, there's no, you know, it, there's no you know, pictures of people like cage side bleeding or any of that kind of stuff people are shown where to go like we it, it doesn't smell that's one of the biggest compliments that i get and one of the most common things is like your gym doesn't smell bad like it doesn't smell like feet and we spend like so much time and energy just to getting it smelling neutral like it is unreal um but yeah that's that's what we do and that's how we invest our time which then makes it more welcoming to people so i'm always getting questions like how can we get more women into the sport well you need to provide clean safe training environments for them like they shouldn't be like, I mean, that should be the standard for everybody. 
But, you know, when you add in things like, you know, the closeness, it becomes slightly more challenging for women as well. For guys, you just don't care because it's a male-dominated sport. For women, you have to think about that side of things as well and make them feel more welcome into the environment. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's, it, it's, it's crazy that, that you can have that dichotomy of thinking that AOJ isn't a sellout. Like, yet they're making, like, they make, they have, last time, again, last time I was there, they had, like, 900 students, bearing in mind this was four years ago. Like, I'll let you do that. Like, they have massive, massive overheads as well. But that's a lot of money they're making a month. Super successful. No one thinks they're a sellout. No one thinks that they shouldn't make money off their brand. Like, why is that? But then you don't you don't hold your health self to the same standards. It's just, like, it's just that 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 thing that's been built up in people's heads that you can't make money from from doing what you love. Tom, it's been amazing talking to you. I've got five quick fire questions that I'd like to oh, okay. throw at you before we finish. I'm ready. All right. So the first one is, what's your favorite submission? I don't have one. The one that works. <laughs> okay, that's a good answer. Tea or coffee? Uh, depends on the time of day. This is kind of leading off from the favorite submission, your favorite hierarchy position. Mount, but back's the best one. Your pre, <laughs> pre-comp music. Don't have any. Don't have anything. And... Although, it did just come out to uh, the Beastie Boys uh Polaris. So there you go. Beastie Boys it is then. Yeah, we'll go with that. And what's your favourite competitor of all time? Karina. Tom Barlow, thank you very much for joining me on the podcast. It's been a pleasure talking to you. Thanks for having me. Cheers, mate. Cheers, bye-bye. And that's it. If you like the podcast, please like, share and subscribe on your podcast providers and leave me a little comment on Apple Podcasts. Thanks for listening.